In his life, when Jesus spoke in the synagogue in Capernaum, it was a full house. Crowds had come to listen to him. It was packed. And for some of the people there, it was their first time hearing Jesus. But for quite a few of them, it wasn't. Quite a few of them had been following Jesus around the region. As he moved around, they followed him. They wanted to hear more of his teaching. They wanted to be closer to him. However, as time passed, and these people heard more of what Jesus had to say, they came to understand that following Jesus wasn't going to be an easy life, because Jesus lived for other people. And Jesus lived for the future world. He wasn't settling down in the here and now. And his teaching, well, it was quite radical, quite exclusive. And so on that day in Capernaum, John records in his gospel that from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And you can imagine that. You can understand that in some ways. These people had been with Jesus. They'd had a go. But now it was time to get back to normal life. And as those folks were leaving, lots of people not following Jesus anymore, Jesus turned to the 12, his closest followers, Peter and James and John, those guys, and he said to them, it's very striking, what about you? Are you also going to leave me? And Peter said on behalf of the others, Lord, where else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Well, that incident and those words from the end of John 6 summarize, they sum up for us the whole message of this letter of Hebrews. The recipients of the letter were followers of Jesus, that is, they were professing Christians, and yet they found that hard. They faced hardship because of their loyalty to Christ. Uh, They were misunderstood by the Jewish community from which, it seems, from reading the letter, many of them had come, and they were misunderstood by the ordinary Roman pagans around them. Moreover, on top of that, on top of that pressure from the outside, they felt within themselves a battle raging between the call of Jesus to purity and service and the natural instincts in all of us, self-focused, leisure-loving. Following Jesus was hard, And so they were tempted to stop. Either in one fell swoop, just to pack it in, or else more gradually, more slowly, to drop down the gears and drift away. And so the writer, who obviously knew these people, he knew the pressure they were under, wrote to them to call them back, to help them to stand firm. And the way that he argues is just like Peter in John 6. Throughout the letter, what he's doing is he shows them Jesus, and he says to them, where else are you going to go? Where else are you going to go? Because only Jesus is the one who meets your needs. Only in Jesus do we have a final word from God about what he's like, and a finished work that will make us right with God and the promise of a future world with God forever. That's how the writer argues. He holds up Jesus and he says, look, look again at him. See how fantastic he is, how far superior to all the other alternatives, and stick with him, because where else are you going to go? Which is why this letter is urgent 
and relevant for us. Because if we're followers of Jesus, as many of us here would be, we see ourselves that way, we face the same pressures that they faced. We face the same pressures, not in exactly the same ways, but we read the letter and we recognize what they were feeling. Because we feel the struggle with sin, don't we? We, go, we grow weary in that. We feel the pressure from outside, the shame of being a bit different, of sticking out in our culture. There is this pressure on us to stop or just to drift. And I wonder if you felt that. If you haven't, it might be that you haven't been a Christian for very long, or you haven't been alive for very long, or you haven't been running very hard. Think of that when you go jogging. If you've been, if you go jogging and you're not, in some at some level, tempted to stop, it's either because you're amazing, or else you're not running very fast. And Christians, as we talk to each other, if we're honest, we say, "Well, yeah, I have felt that pressure to stop, to veer off into a different path of life." and settle down, and take it a bit more easy, and just to knock the edges off my faith and fit in a bit more. We feel this pressure, and so we need the writer's message, which is to look at Jesus, look at him again, and see how great he is, and stick with him. Now, it's an uncomfortable message. This letter about sticking with Jesus, it's uncomfortable because it... Well, it's painful to think about the Christian friends that many of us will know who have turned back or have drifted. It's painful to think about that. And it's also troubling to have to think very deeply about our own life and where are we going. How do I feel this pressure? Do I feel this pressure? If not, why not? If I do, what am I going to do with it? It's troubling. And it's also theologically troubling because, well, how can a real Christian fall away. Is that even possible? And we'll say a bit more about that next week. So Hebrews is sober stuff. It's a letter full of warnings, but it is fundamentally a very warm invitation because the writer's method is to show us Jesus and say, he says to us, look at him again. If only you would look, you would see that you don't, you don't want to turn anywhere else. You want to stick with him right to the end, and all the more closely. So we're going to have a look at um, the second chapter this evening and and see the picture of Jesus that the writer puts forward. But um, just as we begin, it's very helpful to get the overall message. So please have a look at the passage. There are kind of three three steps of the logic that I've described. Um, Verses 5 to 18, that is, you could call that info about Jesus. He kind of talks about Jesus, that's what we're going to look at this evening, which leads on to chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus. You see that? Therefore, look at Jesus. This is what he's like, look at him. Which leads to chapter 3, verse 6. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence. You see that? Look at Jesus. And so stick with Jesus. That's the logic here. And our job is to, is to look really closely at verses 5 to 18 and see what the writer is showing us about Jesus that will inspire us to stick with him. 
Now, as we look at these verses, the main thing, the main idea here is that the, um, the eternal Son, God the Son, became one of us. God the Son became one of us, a human being. In the first chapter, that was all about how Jesus is the exalted Son of God. But here, the writer moves on to explain how that exalted Son of God came down and became a human being. He suffered as flesh and blood, as a man. The heir of all things, the eternal Son, became one of us. So have a look at verse 9. That's the first place that we see this articulated. Um, It says that for a little while, Jesus was made lower than the angels. It's just a way of saying he became a human being, a little lower than the angels for a time. Well, verse 11, look at that. He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, i.e. the Savior and those whom he saves, all have one source, all part of the same human family, Or after that, it says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers, his brothers. Or verse 14, look on to that. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of those things. And then the clearest of all, in verse 17, therefore Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So that's that's the main idea here. Um, God the Son became one of us. And it's simple to see that that's the main idea, but it's not a simple truth. When you think about it, it's it's mind-boggling. The words that we sang were, were fantastic. Wisdom unsearchable, God the invisible, love indestructible, in frailty appears. Lord of infinity, stooping so tenderly, lifts our humanity the heights of his throne. It's a mind-boggling truth that the perfect Son of God, eternal, equal with the Father and the Spirit, always existed, the one through whom the universe was made, perfect in every attribute, the eternal Son of God became a human baby, flesh and blood, one of us. And he really entered into the experience of our life from womb to tomb, He did it properly. He suffered. And what we see as we read this is that he did all that. He came down for our benefit. You could think of it like this. Men and women, humans, we're in a pit. A deep, nasty pit. Because we're in trouble with God. The world is in a mess. Our lives often are in a mess, fraught with issues. And then we die. Isn't that a happy picture for a Sunday evening? We're in a pit. That's what the Bible says. And um, humanism says, well, there's nothing else apart from this pit, so you better make the best of it. A religion keeps on trying to think of ways for us to climb out of the pit, none of which work. So what does Jesus do? He climbs down into the pit to stand beside us as a brother He enters into the mess of our situation and he says to us, right, at least now we're in this both together and I can get you out. God the Son became one of us. This kind of um, self-sacrificing solidarity really is a very special thing. This man, 
uh, Richard Winters, is, is remembered as one of the finest individual leaders that the U.S. Army has ever produced. Fighting in France and Belgium in the Second World War, his unit became famous throughout the Allied forces for their bravery and their fierce loyalty to one another. Um, speaking after the war, some of the men who, who fought underneath Winters in his, in his units, they were asked, what made him so special? What made him the kind of man that others were willing to follow? In response, they spoke about his various qualities, but they also spoke about his willingness to absolutely be there with his men. One of them said this, if you are a leader, you lead the way. And not just on the easy missions, you take the hard ones too. He, talking about Winters, he went in there and he never had a thought of not being the first to go or of sending someone else in his place. I don't know how he survived. Because even though he was an officer, Winters fought side by side with his men. He stood with them at every point. And so they were willing to stand with him. It's that kind of solidarity that the writer is talking about that we have from Jesus Christ, that he was willing to come down and stand with us. And it's when we see that, it's when we feel that, that it helps us to stand with him. We can start to to feel, can't we, the writer getting hold of us. Think about Jesus. If he came down, if he was willing to suffer, well, I'm not so sure I want to move away or drift away from a man like that. I see how committed he was to me. And it raises my commitment towards him. He suffered. He came to stand beside me in the suffering of human experience. Therefore, I can stand, even if I have to suffer, because he has shown me how. Jesus came and stood with us became one of us as a brother. When we see that, when we feel that, it will strengthen us to stand with him. But the writer goes into more detail in the passage. How how precisely did Jesus help us by coming down, becoming one of us? How? In two ways. First, he became one of us to fulfill our human destiny to fulfill our human destiny. This um, is where we launch into the detail of it. So have a look, please, from verse 5. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection, under his feet. The writer there is quoting from Psalm 8, which is all about the original place and dignity of humanity, that we were created, men and women, to rule the world under God. You might remember back in Genesis 1, there's the animals and the fish and all that sort of thing, and then he says to the men and women, be fruitful and multiply and rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and all the rest of it. We were to be his stewards, in the garden as his gardeners, his viceroys. That was our position, our human destiny. And we blew it. And we still blow it 
we do in our lives in rebelling against God, one of the consequences of that is that we're not able to rule either ourselves or the creation properly. Which, if you look down, is exactly what Hebrews goes on to say. Look at the second half of verse 8. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, that is to mankind, I think he left nothing outside his control. At present, though, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. That's what he's saying. The world's a mess. Children starve. People die of preventable diseases. The environment is ravaged. Around the world, poverty eats up lifetimes of human potential. And the point is, all of that is happening on our watch. That's the kind of world over which we preside. And we say, well, that's not my fault. I can't control any of those things. To which the writer would say, precisely. How little we look like the responsible rulers we were made to be. Instead of ruling this world for God, we're under his curse, and we will die. And so it looks as if we have blown our human destiny. And yet see how verse 9 carries on. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. There is a man who is fulfilling the mandate for humanity, Jesus. He came down, he suffered, he died, but he rose again, he ascended into heaven, was crowned as the ruler over all things, and so now, even tonight, there is a human being on the throne in heaven ruling over the world. And the point is that Jesus, the first man to make it there, because he came down, will lift us up so that we will be with him also. I wonder if you knew that. That's what the Bible promises, that one day, if we're Christians, if we stand firm until the end, we will reign with Jesus in the new creation and so fulfill our human destiny. If you're taking notes, have a look at it later. Revelation 2, verses 26 and 27. Although, I should say, that's not the only verse that talks about it. That's just the first one I could think of. Men and women, you and I, will rule the new creation with Jesus. That's what we were born to do. And through Jesus, it shall be so. He came to fulfill our human destiny But the point is that he had to be a human in order to do that. Because God's plan was for humanity to rule. Not the angels, not even the divine son. God said that human beings would rule the world. And that word must stand. And so Jesus became a human being to make it stand. He came down, became one of us, back to heaven to exalt our humanity, even up to the very throne of God. He tasted death. He came down so that he could lift us back up to his original position, to our original position, rather. It's a glorious thing that this passage is talking about, that the brotherly love, the solidarity that Jesus has shown towards us, that he was willing to come down and suffer and even to taste of death for us 
so that one day we will stand with him, fully restored in the new creation, fully human again. And the writer is saying, look at Jesus. That's what he's done. And that's what will be the effect for you. Look at Jesus and stick with him. Because where else are you going to go? Who else is offering you that kind of future to fulfill all your human potential, to fulfill what we feel at some level subconsciously we were born to do, all the potential within us that we feel is there but never quite materializes? Who else is offering you the fully human future of which Jesus speaks? Where else are you going to go? And also, it's funny, when we start to look to that far horizon of the new creation, we start to think about what it'll be like to be with Jesus, to be lifted back up with him in the end. Suddenly, the pressures of this world ease back. Because one day, I'll stand with him. That's what I want. And so if I suffer now, well, I know it'll only be for a little while. And the wrong things that appeal to me now and tempt me to turn aside, well, those are not the things I really want. That's what I really want, to be with Jesus, fully human again, ruling in the new creation. And also the pull of this world on us, the pull to settle down and get more comfortable, weakens when we look at Jesus standing in exalted humanity, ruling Because we understand then that real, lasting satisfaction will not come from settling down here and all the little things that we enjoy. New car, save money, redecorate the house. um, Sometimes those things are necessary. But that's not what excites me because what I want is to stand in the world to come. I want to see it. I want to see it. I want to be there with Jesus. And as we look ahead to that, we find that we are actually able to withstand the pressure to stop. And not just to withstand the pressure, not just to survive spiritually, but to pick up the pace. Loads of us here must be feeling in one way or another the pressure to stop or to slow down in following Jesus. And so the writer says to us, Look again at Jesus. He stepped down so that he could lift us up. And he will bring you into that future world. You will fulfill your human destiny through Jesus the man. And he moves on. The second reason that... uh, um, um, Second reason that um, God the Son became one of us. To face our human death... The uh, writer has mentioned that in verses 9 and 10. He says that Jesus came to taste it for everyone on our behalf and that he brings many sons to glory through his suffering. Just look at verse 10. Um, It's potentially confusing. The writer is not saying that Jesus was imperfect but then became perfect through suffering as as if some fault in him was cured. That's not what it means. He's saying that Uh, He became a perfect savior through his suffering. He had a a purpose, and he fulfilled it. He completed his work and became perfect in that sense. That's what that means. 
Anyway, though, it's really from verse 14 that the writer gets into this second idea. So have a look at that, if you would, please, from verse 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might um, destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, was subject to lifelong slavery. Now, some of that's quite complicated. It's basically a description of the pit that we're in. We're under sentence of death because the price for human sin is human death. And being under that sentence, it's as though we are enslaved. We're enslaved because the, the grave is always there waiting for us ready to cancel out our achievements and sever our relationships and strip us of really everything we have. And so we fear death, and like slaves, we can't escape from it. And the, the threat of death is also hanging over us. It's used to keep us in line. The writer, if you look at it, he talks about Satan having the power of death. It's hard to know exactly what that means, but it seems to be something like this. Satan uses the prospect of our, uh, of, um, our uh, mortality to, to keep us in line. We live for this world because he keeps reminding us, well, you're going to die one day, so don't miss out. You better cling on to what you've got or I'll, uh, because one day it'll all be gone. And perhaps the idea is there as well that He can frighten us into telling the line of this world as well, because if we stick out too much, then our death might just come a little bit sooner than we'd thought. Now, maybe to us that sounds a bit melodramatic, but reading Hebrews, that is the sort of threat that they faced, as, of course, many, uh, many Christians still do around the world. We're enslaved under the sentence of human death, which is why Jesus came to face precisely that sentence for us. He came to pay the price by dying in our place. Saw that in verse 9. Verse 14 says that it's through death that Jesus freed us from our slavery to it. And then verse 17 comes at it from a slightly different angle. It says that um, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he could be a faithful priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's some Old Testament imagery that we'll get into more in future weeks. But what it means is that Jesus became a human to offer as a priest the sacrifice of himself as he died on the cross. And that word propitiation, it means that he turned aside or averted the wrath, the anger of God. He pacified or satisfied the justice of God so that we could be forgiven. And the point is, again, that he did that very precisely because the penalty for human sin is human death. That's what hangs over us. And so that's what Jesus faced on our behalf. An angel could not save us from that sentence. Even the divine son could not save us from that sentence by dying for us. In order to represent us, he had to become one of us. And so he did. You might sometimes wonder, well, if, you know, why couldn't God just forgive us if that's what he wanted? Because his word 
and his justice had to be upheld. He had said that the price of human sin is human death. You can't just forget about that. God's words will stand. And so to make it stand, and yet that we might be forgiven, Jesus came and faced human death very precisely to be our saviour. Hang on a minute, somebody might say, how how can we say that he saved us from death? Because Christians still die. And that's true. We still face the end of our physical life. But the sting of death has been removed. And there's nothing more real in our lives than this. It's what we were thinking about this morning, isn't it? It's what we'll all face. And if I can put it this way... um, Because of Jesus, the Christian will now die under the smile of God rather than the frown of God. The sting of it has been drawn by Jesus. And that makes all the difference in the world. That for the believer, when we die, it's not an exit. It's not the end of this life, an exit, but an entrance into the world to come. And so again, as we grapple with what the writer is saying, and it isn't easy. We start to feel the effect of his words. He's saying, look at Jesus. Look at what he's done. Look at what he's saved you from. And stick with him. Because who else are you going to go to? Who else can save you in such a precise way from the human death that you face? Nobody. Nobody. Either Jesus pays, or we will pay ourselves And who else has loved us like this? Verse 17 calls Jesus merciful. Absolutely. I think that might be an understatement in the Bible there. When he was free and safe and happy, he stepped down, he chose to step down into our misery to stand by us as a brother. And he's also able to help us. The final verse there, verse 18. Look at that, please. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. When you feel the pressure to stop, you go to Jesus, you pray honestly and explain to him that you're finding it hard. He knows all about it. Because he went through that. Later on in the letter, we will read these words. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised its shame and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We come to a saviour who was one of us, who knows what he's talking about, who is able to help. Think back, please, to the time when Jesus preached in Capernaum. All those people turning away. Following Jesus isn't easy. But when we see what he's like, what he's done for us, when we look at his example, and when we seek his help, we find that we are able to stick with him, to stand with him, because we say with Peter, 
Where else could we go? God the Son became one of us to fulfill our human destiny and to face our human death. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were willing to step down and to stand with us. Please help us to keep on standing with you until we also finish the race that is set before us. Please bring us into that future world where you have gone before us. Amen. Amen.